The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 412. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com, where it's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do enroll. 10 Myths of American History, and you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. I've got a new course out right now. If you were a McClanahan Academy subscriber, you knew about it first. But, of course, it's a great class, Originalist Papers, Part 1. I've got three more parts coming this year, so stay on the lookout for that. And in fact, this particular podcast is going to focus on originalism again. So we've done that recently. I'm going to do it again. You can also support the show by clicking on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. You get your book plate. If you want my autograph on one of my books, just click on that, and I can autograph the plate to you and send it out. You stick it on the book, you've got the autograph. Of course, that means you need to buy some of my books, so you've got all kinds of options for that. My recent Southern Scribblings is great, 60 Essays in Defense of the Southern Tradition. Go on out and get it. You can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. So wherever you buy books on your online retailer should have it. You can also support the show by clicking on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And you go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, another great website where I teach with Tom and a whole bunch of other great instructors. So all kinds of ways to support the show. And as always, rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're listening to it. Share it around on social media. That's how we grow the audience. All right, so let's talk about the topic of the day. And of course, this is a... Uh, Last-minute thing I put together, I'm actually going to base this on an email that I received along with this particular bill, which just passed the Congress, I think this morning. I'm recording this on Thursday. Uh, maybe it was last last night. I can't remember the exact time frame. But H.R. 1, H.R. 1, which is a new bill that Congress uh, has now passed, at least the House of Representatives, is going to the Senate. And this bill is going to revolutionize the way that we have elections in the United States. In fact, the entire aim of the bill is to federalize elections. To nationalize would be a more accurate phrase, elections in the United States. Now, of course, we have amendments to the Constitution that prohibit the states from denying people the vote based on race, sex, or age if you're 18 or older. So we have those things. And, of course, a lot of people point to the 14th Amendment But the interesting thing about the 14th Amendment, when this argument is used, is that the 14th Amendment was passed, and then it took the 15th Amendment to say that uh, voting could not be denied on the basis of race. So simply by passing the 15th Amendment, Congress recognized that the 14th Amendment did not regulate the elections or allow Congress to interfere with the rules and regulations for the elections at the state level. Now... This all comes down to one part of the Constitution. And I talked about this, in fact, very recently 
when I talked about the original intent of the Tenth Amendment in Massachusetts. I talked about how this was a big issue at the time of ratification. And I'm going to go back because I'm going to read one paragraph from this H.R. 1. And then I'm going to go and read a part of a dissent that has to do with the case involved there. I think this is important. You see, Congress is well aware that there's going to be a legal challenge to this. It's going to come because what they're doing is overstepping their authority and regulating the elections of the states. Now, because what would happen ultimately is that if Congress, so this thing goes through and you have these requirements put in place, this would then determine not just federal elections, but state elections as well. You see, here is the real issue. If these things go into place for federal elections, you're not going to have one set of rules for federal elections and one set of rules for state elections. You just won't have that. So what you're going to have is one set of rules. So Congress, by default, then nationalizes even the state elections. This is why the Constitution is set up the way it is, or at least in this particular way, because you had the states fully involved. And as everyone in the founding generation recognized, if Congress had attempted to nationalize the elections, the Constitution never would have been ratified. That's why originalism is so important in this particular situation. So we've got this H.R. 1. And the other thing is an email. I'm going to get to that because we're going to talk about democracy in a minute. Because the question, well, McClanahan, why are you against democracy? What's wrong with democracy? What do we need to do with democracy? First of all, we don't have a democracy, not, not a true democracy in the United States. We have a representative government, which is certainly democratic when you choose your elected representatives, but it's not a direct democracy where you vote on everything. And that, So when we use this term democracy, we have to actually qualify what that means. We have Republican government, and it's representative Republican government, and we have that at every level of government in the United States, from all the way from local up to the central authority. So we have various levels of Republican government in the United States. But that doesn't mean we have a democracy. And now in some cases, we do have direct democracy techniques in the states. And we're seeing this right now in California with the recall effort of Gavin Newsom. That is a direct democracy technique. You go in, you vote, and you say, I want the governor out. And then, of course, you choose a replacement. So it is a direct impact. And you have it with initiative and referendum as well. You know, when the legislatures put something up to the to the people of the states for a tax increase or something like that. You have all of these things, these direct democracy techniques, but we don't have direct democracy in the United States. That's the closest we get to it when there's a referendum. When something is put on the ballot, and some states have this and some states don't, but when, a, when an issue is put on the ballot and the people vote it up or down, that is pure direct democracy. Now, we're never going to have that for the general government. We can't. First of all, it's unconstitutional. It was actually discussed uh, in the 1860s, or at least uh, right around 1860, with the Crittenden Compromise. John J. Crittenden authors this compromise. The Senate Committee of 13 hashes through these things. And when it failed there, John J. Crittenden of Kentucky, Kentucky said, well, look, let's put this to a national referendum. If that had happened in 1860, I can guarantee you there would have been no war. Because I do believe, overwhelmingly, the American public would have voted in favor of the Crittenden Compromise. Now, what that means is, we can get into the whole, that and a whole other thing, but 
there's, but again, he said, we can't do this. We can't put a piece of legislation up to the vote of the people. So American people as a whole. So this is where we will never have direct democracy. In that way, we don't have a direct democracy for the general government, and the general government does not have complete control of elections. Because, again, if you nationalize the elections, you're going to create a situation where the states then have to follow federal rules for their own elections. That's the inverse of what the Constitution actually says on the issue. So I said on social media, this is blatantly unconstitutional. But Congress is trying to work around that issue, and I'm going to read what they said about that. So let me get into this. It's H.R. 1, and I have to go to my tab here where I have it. So it says, Congress finds that the Constitution of the United States grants explicit and broad authority to protect the right to vote, to regulate elections for federal office, and to defend the nation's democratic process. Congress enacts the For the People Act of 2021. It was just Morgan and Morgan for the people. Pursuant to this broad authority, including but not limited to the following. So then they give you, in their, in their mind, a legal case for how this is 100% constitutional. Number one, Congress finds that it has broad authority to regulate the time, place, and manner of congressional elections under the Elections Clause of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1. The Supreme Court has affirmed that the substantive scope of the elections clause is broad, that times, places, and manner are comprehensive words which embrace authority to provide for a complete code for congressional elections, and the power of Congress of the times, places, and manner of congressional elections is paramount and may be exercised at any time and to any extent which it deems expedient and so far as is exercised and no further the regulations affected supersede those of the state which are inconsistent therewith. And they cite a case, Arizona versus Intertribal Council of Arizona. This is a 2013 case. And then they give some others. Indeed, Congress has uh, plenary and paramount jurisdiction over the whole subject of congressional elections. Okay. So if you go and you look at the text of the Constitution, let me read this. Article 1, Article 1, Section 4. The times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at any time, by law, make or alter such regulations, except as to the places of choosing senators. Now, here is the rub again. So Congress is saying, look, I mean, this says we can interfere at any time in these congressional elections for senator and member of the House of Representatives. But hold on a second. Article 1, Section 2. The House of Representatives shall be composed of members chosen every second year by the people of the several states, and the electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislature. So, what you are doing here... Now, we're getting into two issues. This is where they're going to split hairs. We're getting into two issues. One is Congress is saying that... We're not saying that... uh, We're telling you who can vote. We're just saying we're going to tell you how people can vote. So we're going to expand mail-in voting. We're going to make automatic voter registration. These are some of the things. We want to make it easier for people who are under 18 to vote. In fact, there was even a right or an amendment added to this, or attempted to be added to this, drop the voting age to 16 for federal elections. But again, 
when you do this one time, when you do it for federal elections, it's going to apply to the states because they're going to they're going to push that. They're going to say, well, look, we pass. A, so now if you have another rules for state elections, well, that's completely unconstitutional because we have this supremacy clause. Right. Now, the problem with all of this is that this was heavily debated in the period leading up to ratification, heavily debated. In fact, the opponents of the document zeroed in on this quite a bit on that Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, or Paragraph 1 of Article 1, Section 4. They, zero, they said, look, what's happening here? This is going to destroy. This is going to destroy the relationship of the states and the general government, and not just that, we are going to be overrun by this new constitution. And so because of that, you had proponents of the document argue up and down that they were not going to abuse this power. That didn't stop, for example, Massachusetts from proposing an amendment. And I talked about this in a previous podcast that Congress do not exercise the powers vested in them by the fourth section of the first article, but in cases where a state shall neglect or refuse to make the regulations therein mentioned, or shall make regulations subversive of the rights of the people to a free and equal representation in Congress agreeably to the Constitution. So here is John Hancock of Massachusetts, because he's the primary author of this, saying, look, we know we've heard your arguments for this, but I'm still suspicious you're going to use this to interfere in elections, that Congress will come in and do exactly what Congress is doing in 2021 with H.R. 1, that they're going to nationalize elections. And that was seen as a dangerous thing for the people of Massachusetts. We're not talking about South Carolina here, Georgia, Virginia, all those evil slave owners down there. No, no. We're talking about these pure, benighted people of Massachusetts who never did anything wrong in 1788, saying, you know what? We have a situation here where Congress can abuse power, so let's restrict that with this amendment. Now, the argument is, well, that was never ratified. Nobody agreed to that. So then the founders certainly thought that the that the uh, staff, general government could get involved in any state election, any election, any time it wanted, for any reason. Just look at Article 1, Section 4, and then look at the Supremacy Clause, you loon. I like that word, loon. I saw Michael Bowden, somebody uh, commented on one of his videos and called him a loon twice. A loon. So the fact is, we've got some conflict here. And this is where I get into Clarence Thomas's dissent in that Arizona case, Arizona versus Intertribal Council of Arizona. In fact, he and Samuel Alito dissented from the opinion there. It was a 7-2 decision. And Thomas goes through the ratification debates in several states. He goes through Eliot's debates. He cites Federalist, uh, some of the essays of the Federalist to show that the problem here is that Congress does not have complete control over elections and that if that was the case, if that was the case, the Constitution would not have been ratified. This is a rock-solid originalist dissent. There is the rub. This is why I say the bill is completely unconstitutional. Because if anyone in the founding generation thought H.R. 1 was on the docket any time in the future, they wouldn't have ratified the Constitution. But they were, they were told, up and down, this is not going to result in federal control of elections. The states are going to control these things. Look, I mean, it says it. 
the, the legislatures make their make the uh, the rules and regulations. From the beginning, they make the rules and regulations, but the Congress may interfere. The point was that Congress, it was argued that Congress would not interfere unless the states became delinquent. Because the states aren't delinquent in this. The states are passing all kinds of legislation all the time to regulate elections. They're not delinquent. They're sending people to Congress. We've got 535 crooks there to show you that they're sending people to Congress. I mean, what other evidence do you need? But no, this isn't enough. You see, the Democrats want to ensure that we have as much potential fraud as possible in our future elections. Now, they've got a section on their election security. Yeah, okay. So what we're going to get is ballot harvesting. We're going to get uh, extended mail-in voting. No voter ID. That's one of the biggest ones. No voter ID. You cannot require voter ID. That would be illegal according to H.R. 1. Now, this thing is going to get tied up in court. I can guarantee you, if it, it only passed by, I think, eight votes in the House of Representatives. And if the filibuster is not abolished in the Senate by the Democrats, which they're heavily considering, then it might go through the Senate. The only hope you have is that the Senate will just filibuster it, and it'll just die in the House. But... If the Senate somehow decides it's going to vote on it, Kamala Harris will cast the deciding vote. As if, uh, you know, Joe from uh, from West Virginia, Senator Joe from West Virginia, doesn't somehow defect and say, I'm not going to sign on to this thing. Or some other Democrat decides they're going to defect. But you see, the Democrats know what they're doing here. This if this helps Democrats more than Republicans, which is why they want to do it. There will also be restrictions on, on gerrymandering and other things. So... This is a big piece of legislation and, to me, blatantly unconstitutional. There's nothing in it that you could say. I mean, the whole thing is unconstitutional. And I think if you read this Arizona versus Intertribal Council dissent from, from uh, Clarence Thomas, you're going to see that. You're going to see it. Now, what's interesting is that Antonin Scalia, who is supposedly an originalist, sided against Thomas. He voted He voted for the majority in this particular case. So did John Roberts. And this is why I'm not so certain if this thing goes to federal court, if it makes it through, there's going to be much of a Supreme Court resistance to it. I think Thomas would, would vote against it. I think Alito would, would, uh, would uh, decide against it. We know the three leftist judges on the bench would certainly call it constitutional. Roberts probably would as well, which means that you need to get all three of Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Barrett to knock this thing down. Now, Barrett might, but her hero is Antonin Scalia. And even Thomas might be a little bit questionable here because he even says in this dissent that, you know, well, I mean, you, they can regulate elections in this way in the times, manners, and places, but that doesn't mean you can regulate who can vote, right? And I mean, so he brings up all kinds of evidence that, you know, the founders had all kinds of restrictions on voting, property qualifications, all kinds of things. As long as you don't have a poll tax, even that is legal. As long as it's not based on race or age or sex, all of that is legal. I mean, this is why a test would be technically Legal. You got to take a test to be able to vote. I mean, all these things are legal. So this this brings me to the point. This is something that a, a, a listener asked. What is it? I mean, should we be looking for some other m- method uh, in the United States, some other political 
method than democracy. Would democracy, or has democracy, failed the United States? And of course, he's reading Hoppe's Democracy, the God that Failed. So would it be better off, in his mind, to have a soft monarchy? Well, I would respond to that. We already have it. The American presidency already is a soft monarchy. It's not anything but. We don't have a hereditary monarchy, but we certainly have an elected monarchy with the president of the United States serving as an elected king. I don't know what else you could call it but that. So do we need a soft monarchy? No, we don't. We just need good Republican government. The problem is we have such a distorted, corrupted view of government in the United States and what government actually is and what government's there to do that this is going to be very difficult. So I know what happens, you know, we, we decentralize and we get down to almost, uh, you know, where you create these very small, limited monarchies, minarchies is what they're also often called, minarchies. You know, you have a little mini government, you've got a, a a monarchy there in that little mini-government. And he brings up a good point, the, the listener does, about the Greeks and how they had this cyclical view of history, which is entirely true. The Greeks viewed everything as cyclical. There was no linear progression of history. What goes around comes around. I mean, this is why you can say history repeats itself, because history mirrors itself. The, the main constant in all of that is that there's people involved. And so people do similar things in similar situations. And... As government ebbs and flows with political culture, these things are going to happen there as well. So certainly we have problems of democracy. We definitely definitely have problems of democracy. The, the, The issue, though, is not democracy itself. It's how we view the word democracy. And, of course, what representatives are actually there to do in Washington, D.C., in the various state legislatures, in your local government around the United States. That is the issue not the idea of democracy or at least representative government itself. First of all, you cannot have a monarchy according to the Constitution because it says we have to have a Republican form of government in every state. The Congress shall guarantee to every state a Republican form of government. A monarchy is not Republican. Neither is the situation we have in D.C. today. So you could say, well, we've already got this awful situation in D.C. Maybe we should look at something else. But regardless, the clause in the Constitution that ensures that states will have a Republican form of government would be a major hindrance to some type of monarchy. I, I just don't think it's a good idea. Uh, the real issue with American government is that there's no accountability. That's the real issue in American government. There's no accountability for anybody. There's no, I mean, look at, look at Andrew Cuomo. There's no accountability for him. Or Gavin Newsom. These people are doing all kinds of things. Liberty for me, but not for thee. This is the puritanical liberty, the liberty of the community over individual liberty, unless you have special privileges because of who you are. And we're seeing that in these blue states. We're seeing people that have special privileges because of who they are. And for everyone else out there who is saying, look, I've had to wear a mask. I can't go to restaurants. I can't do this. And yet Gavin Newsom is gallivanting around at a restaurant or, or uh, you know, Brett Kavanaugh was raked over the coals during his confirmation hearing. But yet Andrew Cuomo, ah, oh, we need to just, uh, we need to have due process here. Let's, let's not rush to conclusions about Andrew Cuomo. Let's not do that. But yet somebody made an accusation against Brett Kavanaugh that's 30 plus years old. Oh my gosh, the guy's guilty of sin. He did all of these things. 
He's guilty. He's guilty. This is what makes American politics absolutely maddening for a lot of people because they can see it. Anyone with a brain, anyone with with normal brain function can see what's happening right now. And I think in one way, the Democrats are going to overplay their hand. They're going to go too far left and they're going to get knocked out in the next election cycle. I could be wrong, but I think this is what's going to, we're going to start seeing that because the Democrats are going very far left. And once the pandemic, quote unquote, pandemic is over, what are they going to have to fall back on for needing all this voter, uh, you know, mail-in voting restrict requirements and all this kind of, what are they going to need that for? They're not going to. And that is, again, another great travesty behind this legislation. We're going to see some really serious problems out of this stuff. So my position on H.R. 1, blatantly unconstitutional. I think the ratification debates point to that. Even Clarence Thomas, I mean, he agrees, um, but for a different issue. But he certainly, I think, would agree that these type of restrictions are unconstitutional. But, of course, Congress is going to punt their responsibility and say, oh, no, this is perfectly constitutional. We, we know it is. And this is Nancy Pelosi. Well, of course it's constitutional. How dare you ask me if it's constitutional? Of course it is. Not according to the original Constitution as ratified. It's not. Maybe... 20th century interpretations of it, okay. But 19th century interpretations of the document don't support the legality of this particular bill. All right. That said, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time for the next one. See you then.